Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, and joining me is the ever-lovely Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing today? Doing great. My baby just went down for a nap, and I'm hoping the baby will nap the entire podcast. I think that you have the single chillest baby that ever existed, except for when we are recording a podcast, at which point she decides that she needs all of the attention. Yes, that is the case, but she's cute, so she gets away with it. Well, at least you guys, our listeners, can be blessed by the ever-lovely sounds of Corey's baby screaming in the background. Anyway, today we are going to be finishing up Leviticus. So for all of you who have started off your yearly or annual Bible reading only to be discouraged when you get to Leviticus and fail your annual Bible reading, take heart in knowing that we are at the doorstep to the finish line. The, the, the doorstep to the finish line? Is that a thing? We're, we're almost there. Today's episode, and then you are home free. It's all smooth sailing after this. So in today's episode, we're going through chapter 23 through 27, finishing up Leviticus, talking about the feasts and a few other things. So let's go ahead and jump in. However, before we do, let's give a brief recap. Corey, what have we covered so far? Well, last week, we only covered four chapters. Well, I guess technically it's Five, Leviticus 18 through 22, which covered two sections of Leviticus. We talked about how chapters 18 through 20 were talking about the moral purity of the camp. In chapter 18, there's various laws pertaining to sexual immorality and the consequences for that, which went and looked back at Exodus in the ways in which it talked about sexual morality, every single instance in Leviticus talked about do not uncover the nakedness of this relative relation of yours. And we talked about how that was a hyperlink back to Genesis 9, when Ham saw his father's nakedness, but his brothers covered the nakedness of their father. But from there, we went on to chapter 19, which was this really cool chapter, which has this really cool line in there saying, Be holy, for I am holy. We see different ways in which people get to be holy like God. And within that, we also saw the unlikely occurrence of love. We don't usually think of the Torah of Yahweh being about loving your neighbor. But all these instructions in chapter 19 had to do with loving people and talking about treating foreigners well. Just as you would love yourself because you were once foreigners in a foreign land. Or even things like, when you're harvesting, leave some of the edges of your field unharvested. Don't go back through a second time, but leave things for the poor in your land or the foreigner in your land. Really cool. And we talked about chapter 20 being this swing chapter where a lot of the book up to this point said, be holy, like a command, like you need to be holy. But chapter 20 tells us what the whole book has been kind of alluding to with its language, but it says, I am Yahweh who makes you holy. I am Yahweh who sets you apart from the nations. So there's a partnership here. You're going to worship and obey me, and I will make you holy. And we talked about there that no sacrifice makes the people holy. No sacrifice of a cow can atone for someone's sin, but God does it. 
and he chooses this means. So it's the faith of his followers through God's grace that make people holy. And then the other section that we went through last week was chapters 21 through 22, which is talking about the priests and specifically the qualifications for priests. And we compared these qualifications kind of like Paul's epistles to pastors or elders saying, when you pick a pastor, make sure he's a husband of one wife and has children of good repute and all this stuff. And so it's the same thing for the priests, the priests who are those making sacrifices for the rest of the camp of Israel. They need to be having healthy marriages, healthy families. Their children need to be in order because if they're going to be leading all the people, they need to lead their family well. And we then saw how Yahweh, the one who makes people clean and sets people apart and gives the priests instructions, just like he did the other people, say, you need to not have skin disease. You need to be clean. You need to not touch the dead as I commanded the rest of the camp. So the priests are not any more special or they can get away with breaking Yahweh's commands. Just in case we're wondering, the priests are also in the same boat as all the people to be totally clean, that they need to be representing Yahweh essentially to a higher degree than the rest of the people. So qualifications for the priests, they're held to a, a stricter and higher standard than the rest of the people. And that's the idea we left off on last episode. Awesome. Thank you, Corey. So with that being said, we're going to jump into 23. And before we do, just a brief reminder on the structure that we've mentioned a few times now of the book of Leviticus. And so if you kind of look at it as kind of two sides to a single coin, where at the beginning you have chapters one through seven dealing with sacrifices, the flip side of that is going to be something that we're going to cover today in 23 through 25, dealing with the feasts. We also already went through chapter eight through 10, which is Moses ordaining priests. And we also have gone through chapter 21 through 22, which is the qualifications for priests, which is what Corey just reiterated. And then finally, we have in chapters 11 through 17, chapters dealing with ritual purity, and then chapters 18 through 20, chapters dealing with moral purity. So there's kind of a correlation between those ideas on the different sides of this coin. And then the center of the book we proposed was chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. So we're going to touch on the Day of Atonement again today as well. So let's go ahead and jump now into 23 and talk about the feasts. So in chapter 23, we have one thing mentioned, that's the Sabbath, Shabbats. And that is this idea that's been recurring throughout the book of Leviticus. And the Sabbath as a day at the end of the week is this idea that God created in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. And that idea of rest has continued on and has been talked about now in Leviticus multiple times as something that is for the Israelites, but something that they must do. They have to keep the Sabbath holy. So we have the Sabbath mentioned again, but then all of a sudden we get a bunch of other Sabbaths. Now, these Sabbaths that are mentioned after that weekly Sabbath are the various feasts. And we have already touched briefly on this idea of feast. We talked about it in Genesis when we were talking about Genesis 1, and then we talked about it a little bit in Exodus. Now, what these feasts are for is to signify specific things within the Jewish calendar such that the people know when it's appropriate to worship God and in what manner it's appropriate to worship God. Interestingly, there are seven feasts. 
So we have after the, the weekly Sabbath, we have seven feasts mentioned, and each of these feasts serves to signify a specific thing. So let's go ahead and delve a little deeper into each one just briefly, and it'll get a bit more used to the idea of what these feasts are to signify so that when we come across them later in the text, we actually know what's being talked about. So Corey, what are the feasts? Before we get into the feast, Dylan alluded to that we talked about these feasts in Genesis chapter 1. And I just want to bring that up again. In Genesis chapter 1, when God made the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky, our translations will say there are signs for seasons. That word in Hebrew is moed, right? And this, this word occurs over 200 times in the Hebrew Bible. Most often translated as meeting. So like the tent of meeting that Moses meets God is often moed in Hebrew. But appointed times and appointed feasts are another big use of moed in Scripture. And so in chapter 23, verses 2 and in verse 4, Yahweh repeats, these are the appointed feasts of Yahweh. He uses that same phrase twice, exact same way. And so... The appointed feast is the Moed. So Genesis 1 is trying to tell us the sun, the moon, and the stars are for people to make sure to look up in the sky to not miss their appointed time to get with God. God wants to meet with his people. That's a really big, important detail I want to make sure we talked about before we moved on from there. But then we get into these seven different feasts, as Dylan mentioned. And so the first one is the Passover. And we talked about the Passover with the last plague of Egypt. The Passover happens the first month of the 14th day of the month. The day after that is the 15th day of the month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover looks back to what God did to free the people from Egypt, where he passed over killing the Israelite firstborns, both human and animals and struck the Egyptians with that plague of the firstborn. And then to celebrate, remember that afterwards, they celebrate with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they eat unleavened bread for seven days. We will see this phrase mentioned a lot, that this is a holy convocation, which happens three times in talking about Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Within this, it says, you shall do no ordinary work. And this phrase, you shall not do any ordinary work, is just repeated so often in this chapter. So that's why Dylan says, we're going to go into these seven feasts that are essentially more Sabbaths. So in the same way that God created earth in six days and the seventh day was rest, we have seven feasts that are all about rest. Whether they say rest or not, they will say you shall not do any ordinary work, which is the same language in Genesis chapter 1. And moving from there, we see the Feast of first fruits. The Feast of first fruits happened when the people come into the land of Israel. And so once they come into the land and once they start reaping its harvest, they bring the sheaves of their first fruits to the priest. This is pretty cool. As soon as they go and get to take of the fruit of the land... First thing to do with their first fruits, they go and give it back to Yahweh, saying, God, you gave us the land, therefore we give unto you the fruits of it. 
realizing that all these things come from you, from the land to the fruits to our ability to work. It all goes to God. And they give food offerings and grain offerings that we saw in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And with it, they'll make a pleasing offering to Yahweh. And this is going to be a statute throughout all the generations of Israel. And from there, we have the Feast of Weeks. Um, in the New Testament, this is known as Pentecost because the Feast of Weeks, what happens is they count seven full weeks from that Sabbath when they brought that wave offering from the last feast. So they count 50 days after the seventh Sabbath, and then they present grain offerings and new grain to Yahweh. And again, this is a holy convocation. And as they're doing this, when they go and they reap their fields, it goes back to showing kindness for the poor and sojourner among them. This feast is praising God with their things and their time, but also with their possessions. They're looking to people who are often overlooked in lots of cultures, even today, the poor and the foreigners. God says, make sure you never overlook these people. And again, this is a statute forever throughout all of your generations. And from there, we go to the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets happens the seventh month on the first day of the month. Again, he says, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. This will be proclaimed by a blast of trumpets. And that's it, which is kind of weird. It's like, okay, and the first day of the seventh month, you just blow a trumpet. Well, yeah, to signify this rest, but also to get ready for the big feast that lies in the middle of the book of Leviticus. This chapter that we talked about as being really important to the entire book and really important to our understanding of atonement, which is the day of atonement. This happens on the 10th day of the seventh month, just nine days after the Feast of Trumpets. So the Feast of Trumpets seems to be signifying to people, okay, get ready for this day of atonement that is coming. The day of atonement comes and you can't do any work on that day. You offer offerings to God on that day and you afflict yourself which a lot of people think that this idea of affliction, based on the way it's used in other places in Scripture, means fasting. So you fast, you focus on God, and then, of course, the priest will bring two goats and kill one goat and let the other goat free into the wilderness. This is really important that for God, the people are prepared at the Feast of Trumpets, that the people do not work, that the people are fasting and afflicting themselves in this way so that they can truly just rest and worship God. This is just, again, another Sabbath. And from there we go to the seventh and final feast, which is the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths happens on the 15th day of the seventh month. To kind of keep this in mind, this is the third feast of the seventh month. One happened on the first day, one happened on the 10th day, and this Feast of Booths happens on the 15th day of this seventh month. What happens with this one is that it's going to last seven days. Seven days, they're going to present food offerings to Yahweh. On the eighth day, we talked about the eighth day being this really important measure of time in Leviticus and elsewhere in Scripture to come. This eighth day will be a holy convocation to present a food offering to Yahweh. As people do this, not only are they bringing food offerings, they're bringing 
burnt offerings, they're sacrificing, they're bringing drink offerings. When they do this, they are to go in tents and to remember this time when they were in the wilderness. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can go down to verse 42 of chapter 23, where God commands, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So last thought with these seven feasts, they're all looking back to things that God has done, but they're also going to be looking forward in some really cool ways. We already talked about that with like Passover, Day of Atonement, the ways in which they really closely point to Christ. Feast of Weeks we'll see be called Pentecost because um, in Greek, penta literally means 50, so the 50th day. So yeah, all these feasts, like we have seen Leviticus and all these feasts already do, like in Exodus, they will look backwards and they will look forward to get us ready for things to come. We talked as well in the beginning of Genesis how when God created in seven days, that word for seven is Sheva. That's also really similar to the word for being complete. God completes his work in seven days. And these feasts of God are seven. So we have a complete list of feasts of God. If there is a book to come that adds another feast that was not mentioned in God's Torah, we should be scratching our heads saying, is this a good thing? Uh, an example of that is Esther does that. They make a feast that celebrates the killing and complete annihilation of their enemies. So if we weren't sure, like, is it good for them to go and kill a bunch of people? Well, probably not. But what for sure we can see is that, oh, they shouldn't be adding on to any feast that God did not command them to celebrate in his name. Yeah, I'm really happy that you emphasize the idea that these feasts, being seven feasts, are complete. And so just as Corey already said, the fact that this points back to Genesis, it brings a lot of imagery out of Genesis and themes out of Genesis that flow into it. The idea of seven, the idea of feasts being that which the sun and the moon are created to point towards. And the idea that ultimately, if someone is to add to these feasts, that's probably to be viewed with some suspicion. Yeah. And from there, we go into chapter 24, which is going into the tabernacle and the things within it. Well, actually, just two things within it. It talks about the lamps, and the bread within the tabernacle. And so there's a lot within the tabernacle, which was already talked about in Exodus when Moses was building the tabernacle and God gave him the layout for it. So it's really interesting. He only gives two pieces in the tabernacle for the end of Leviticus. So to zoom in on it, we see that the lamps, by the way, the Hebrew word for the lamp stand here in Leviticus 24 is menorah. So if you guys ever heard of the menorah being that six-branched candle with a single lampstand in the middle, which makes seven candles, that is the lamp that goes inside the tabernacle. And so this lamp provides light for all of the tabernacle and sheds light on the veil of the testimony inside the tent of meeting. The priests go in and this lampstand is providing light for the entire room, the entire space. And then it goes into the bread of the tabernacle. 
And the priests are always going to make sure that they have fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it with a certain ratio. And it's going to be going on the table within the tabernacle again, just in the holy place, not the most holy place. But this bread of the presence is going to be holy. It's going to be for Aaron and his sons to eat. And it's a most holy portion of Yahweh's food offering. So it's really only for those who are set apart for service to Yahweh. And this is marking his covenant with them. And so we see that the lamps, the bread for the tabernacle, again, they look back to one, God said, let there be light and the light shine on the whole world out of darkness and God providing bread for his people in the wilderness. Uh, It's also looking forward to the person of Jesus, who is the light of the world, who will shed light to this entire dark world and shed light on the person of God and the bread that Jesus is the bread that people can go and feast on and be made one with the holiness of God. So really cool symbolisms as Jesus claims to be the light of the world and the bread of life. Looking backwards, looking forward, Leviticus loves to do this. People don't really like to go and read through Leviticus, but I'm sure as you guys are seeing with us here, it's so important to our understanding of books to come and especially our understanding of holiness and especially what it means for God to come and dwell with his people and and just how much it was a sacrifice for him and how important it was for people to act a certain way in God's presence and never undermine his holiness. And from there, we go into some different punishments. Did you want to go into that, Dylan? Yeah, sure. And so from talking about the bread and the lamp, we jump into a section on blasphemy and then a section on justice. And so starting from verse 10, I'm actually going to read this real quick because we kind of get into a brief little narrative section, and then it really highlights a key point that we've already touched on briefly in talking about holiness, but something that should be reiterated. So from verse 10, it says, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and curse. So when it says the name, name is capital there, it's talking about God's name, Yahweh. Then they brought him to Moses. So they brought the son to Moses. His mother's name was Shemileth, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of Yahweh should be clear to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who has cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all of the congregation stone him. Okay. And it says, and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemies the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemies the name shall be put to death. So this section is particularly fascinating. Often, we would probably, in our modern context, look at this and go, wow, how could God be so capricious as to suggest that someone should be killed simply for speaking out against him and blaspheming his name? Well, we've already answered this question briefly at the beginning of our Leviticus escapade. However, the idea is ultimately that Yahweh 
is the one who is holy. Yahweh is the one who already is so other that he is naturally set apart. And so the idea is that these sinful people are being brought up to his level. And also, naturally, Yahweh is the one person in the entire known everything that cannot be prideful. In fact, it would be probably bad for God not to lift up himself, specifically out of the nature of who he is. He he must be praised. He must be lifted up. He must even lift up himself. God can't be prideful as humans can be prideful. So that being said, it's natural then that the one who speaks out against God and actually forsakes, remember back in Exodus, we talked about the idea of bearing God's name. That is that Israelites are bearing God's name. And therefore, in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words that we talked about when it talks about not taking the Lord your God's name in vain, we mentioned how that isn't really having anything to do with the idea of simply saying, oh my God, or something like that. But instead, it's the idea of not living up according to that name which you are bearing. And so if you bear God's name poorly, you go over to the nations, for instance, bearing God's name, they look at you and they go, you are Yahweh's. And then you behave in such a way that would not show that you are Yahweh's. Then that is what it means to bear the name of Yahweh in vain. And so a similar thing is being spoken of here where it's talking about this son who blasphemies Yahweh's name and he bears it poorly. And so because of this, because this person and the Israelites as a whole are to bear the name of Yahweh, if they blaspheme the name of Yahweh, then there's no other hope for them. They should be stoned. That is the natural outcome of this. I wanted to point that out again simply because oftentimes in our minds we go, wow, Leviticus, Exodus, like all of it seems so crazy and so barbaric that God would require this of his people, that God would punish his people so harshly for certain things. But these things are not like things that you and I deal with on a day-to-day basis. We're talking about coming before Yahweh, the God who created everything. And if you take that for granted and you throw that into the trash, then it is natural that you would be cursed for that or even put to death. So that's kind of the idea that's going on here. And then in verse 17 and on, It talks about what we now know as the golden rule, perhaps. Do unto others as you would want to have done unto yourself. The eye for an eye, lex talionis, whatever you want to call it. So here we now deal with retributive justice. So it says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for a life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am Yahweh your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord Yahweh had commanded. So here now we have this interesting section 
that a lot of people like to latch onto. Now, it makes sense. Like I said, it's retributive justice where you do something and it makes sense that that thing should be done back to you if it's poor. You should treat others as you would want to be treated. If you kill someone, it seems natural to us based on our version of justice that that person who killed the person should be killed themselves. Again, retributive justice. Nevertheless, we need to look past simply the letter of the law and also ask the question, what is the shared truth that's really being communicated in this? Furthermore, Jesus actually in the Sermon on the Mount takes this idea and seemingly spins it on his head. But when we look at it and analyze it, we realize he didn't spin it on his head, but instead understood it better than the people who had looked at it and understood it only at face value. So what's really going on here is the idea that ultimately God cares about what one person does to another. Similar to an instance of, say, I had two children and one of them kicked their sister, right? So my son kicked his sister. And I looked at my son and I said, son, don't kick your sister. And he goes, okay, dad. And then he punches her. Well, did he fulfill my command? Well, tech, but but all the parents out there know that that was not what I meant. What I meant was be nice to your sister. And so what God here is doing is establishing a sense of justice such that other people aren't necessarily saying, oh, well, I demand justice for what has happened to me, but instead knowing that justice does exist and must be demanded if they fail to treat others as they should, namely in love. We've already talked about how even in Leviticus, we get this idea that we need to treat one another with love. And so the Israelites need to actually treat one another lovingly. And we consistently get this idea that the sojourner, the foreigner is brought up in these passages, specifically because of the fact that this isn't saying that you, Israel, must treat other Israelites good. But when it comes to everybody else that isn't Israel, then you can treat them like crap. No, it's saying that instead, all the way back to the promise to Abraham, Israel is supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Through Abraham's seed, through Israel, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So Israel must learn then through these instructions how to actually go about doing that. And so that is really what God is doing here in commanding these things is to shape Israel such that they know what godly wisdom is and how to relate to one another and their neighbors, including the foreigner, those who are sojourning among the Israelites. This isn't Israel, go wipe out everybody and be your own people. This is Israel, be the nation that brings the blessing to the world. Corey, anything else to add before we move on? I mean, this makes a lot of sense with the last section we went over where God says, love others. Like, this is my desire for you. This is what it means to be holy, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this seems natural to read this section in light of that saying, oh, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And God gives rules to make us think, oh, you know, I'm not going to fight this guy. If I really hurt him, this is what's going to happen to me. Yeah, that's just natural in the context of things. But yet people don't always like to read the context of things, especially Leviticus, right? From there, going into chapter 25, which is the last chapter of this section, and it gets into what I like to call redemption times. And it starts with the Sabbath year and goes into things like year of Jubilee, talks about redeeming property, 
how to show kindness to the poor among you and redeeming a poor man. Just step back for a second. Notice how this entire chapter is just showing kindness to land, to people and their property, and to the overlooked of society, the poor. So I just wanted to look at the big picture and see like, wow, what a God to add instructions like this. This is so countercultural to all cultures of all people of all time, because people who are fallen, they want to you know, get the most out of their work. They want to make money. They want to conquer and to exalt themselves. We saw that in the Tower of Babylon back in Genesis early on. And so the fact that God includes instructions like this shows the heart of God so clearly and shows that there is no God like him. I just want to preface with that. Dylan, did you want to go into some of the details? I don't know if I want to go too far into depth on these things here for today. We'll probably bring these ideas up in a later podcast. However, suffice it to say that the concepts are, as Corey already described, very important and something that is going to consistently come up. That is that, as I just said, God cares not only about Israel. Again, this this is a covenant that's made with Israel so that through this covenant, all of the world and all of the nations can be blessed. So this isn't something that is specifically for Israel. And we see that in the idea of the year of Jubilee and then in the redemption laws, talking about redeeming property and things like this. And so ultimately God is putting in place ideas where things like slaves, for instance, if someone has offered themselves up as a slave because they can't pay a debt, they are to be let free after a certain amount of time during the year of Jubilee or property. If someone purchases property and utilizes the land in such a way that property reverts back to the original owner after a certain amount of time, even the land is given a Shabbat, a rest where you're only allowed to plant stuff during certain periods of time, but then during specific other periods of time, you must let it rest. God is really interested in bringing everything into this state of balance where Humanity is really reliant on God. Humanity is really doing that which they were called to do at the beginning, namely have dominion over this good earth that God has created, but not to abuse it. They're not supposed to be there to abuse it. And so uh, this plays into a bunch of themes. Uh, It plays into themes of redemption. It plays into themes of the land that we are consistently seeing. And also it does play into the theme of what it means to be holy as God is holy. So he is calling forth basically a a new version of humanity in a sense that is supposed to be set apart and be holy like God is holy and to operate based on God's wisdom. Again, we saw at the very beginning, the main crux of the biblical plot is that humans have chosen their own wisdom over and against God. And so this is God's reprogramming, in a sense, people to come back and understand what his wisdom is and live in accordance with his wisdom. If God can create a nation that lives according to godly wisdom, that nation then can, in a sense, be a light to the other nations and show what it means to actually live in accordance with godly wisdom. And so that's really the ideas that are being propagated here. Again, we're not going to get too far into the weeds and the details. We might come back to that in a little bit. Once again, I would like to reiterate the idea that God does care not only about the land, but also about sojourners, about the poor, 
you have there at the very ending, starting in verse 35 and then through the end, God talking about various things that you should be doing specifically for the poor, various steps that you should actually be taking such that the poor are cared for, various steps that you should be taking such that the sojourners that are among you are cared for as well. So again, this is really a holistic vision that God has for Israel to be this new version of humanity or a version of humanity is more akin to humanity before they chose their own wisdom. So that's kind of what we're getting at here. Corey, anything else on that or should we move on? Something that blows my mind. This is another place where people get caught up because it talks about people owning slaves. But God says, hey, on the year of Jubilee, set them free, which is like, what? What do you mean set my slave free? Or what do you mean give back the land that I bought from this poor person? But yeah, so countercultural. And again, this talks volumes into the character of God. Although there are slaves allowed to be owned, God realizes I'm not working with the ideal, but I will have laws concerning you who would be overlooked otherwise. And so the fact that there is a year where everyone gets freed, every, everyone gets restored, the land that belonged to their family. It's just mind-boggling to me. I mean, you already said those things, but I, I think that we as readers, if we're not really taken aback by that, to see that there is a God giving laws in this way to culture in a world that's like, oh yeah, everyone has slaves and the fittest survive, you know, and you try to get richer and richer and there are people who are just going to be poor and poor and they'll serve you. God says, yeah, I'm going to make all things new come this 50th year, which should be getting us looking forward to the future when some guy makes all things new. But we'll get to that in a long time away from now in the story. But going to chapter 26, we have this really important passage to Leviticus and to the entire Torah. It's a promise for blessings if the people obey this covenant and curses if they disobey this covenant. In chapter 26, like Corey just said, it's one of the most pinnacle sections in Leviticus and perhaps the entire Torah. We've already talked about the idea of what a covenant is and what it means to be under a covenant. We did also briefly touch on the idea that the covenant that Israel through Moses has entered into now with God is a conditional covenant. That means that the Israelites have agreed to abide by the stipulations of the covenant. So if they obey, they will receive the blessings of the covenant. However, there is also the other side of that, where if they do not obey, they will receive the curses of the covenant. And so that is how a conditional covenant works. That is exactly what this is. And we will see that Israel is going to disobey. They will fail and they will receive the curses. Nevertheless, in Deuteronomy, when we get there, we'll see that still God makes provision for them because God is a good God. So in chapter 26 here, it says in verse three, if you walk in my statutes, that's God speaking to Israel. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land securely. I will give you peace in the land. 
You will lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling. And this is probably the most important bit. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk tall. So here we have the blessings. If you do all that Yahweh has commanded you, Israel, this is what you shall receive. Everything will go well for you in the land. That is the ultimate good. And then more than that, even God will walk among you and be your God. And so we really do get this picture all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where this is really the ideal that we're looking to get back to. We are looking to get back to this point where God walks among people. And so we're asking, wow, is this finally it? Well, verse 14 and on gives us the punishment for disobedience. But God says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break them, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will still not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So we see a very stark glimpse of the reality that is before the Israelites if they were to disobey. Ultimately, everything that God said in the blessings that he would give them, that he would be their God and walk among them, all of that will be ripped from their grasp if they disobey and they will be sent to their enemies, which is exactly what we will end up seeing. Spoiler alert. Corey, anything else on that? At the end of this chapter as well. So it's pretty simple. Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. But God says, you know, if you fall far away, but if you come back and confess your iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. Again, we see that God is a God of his word. He will come through on his promises. He desires to bless, but yet will serve justice if his people walk wickedly. However, there's always a chance for them to come back to the fold of God if they wander away. So cool how God is always offering to give of himself and to dwell with his people. By the way, in the blessings where he says, I will dwell with you, that's the same word for tabernacle. So God wants a tabernacle with his people. It's just hard that his people don't always want to tabernacle with him. And so that brings us into the last chapter of Leviticus, which is Leviticus chapter 7, which is about vows. If you guys have ever read the Psalms, 
and watch the psalm say, yes, I will give a sacrifice of thanksgiving and I will give what I have vowed, which happens a lot in the psalms. You might wonder, like, what with sacrifices and vows? It almost seems like they go together. Well, the author of psalms has a good idea of what the book of Leviticus is about. And so the whole last chapter is essentially about vowing to God. If you were to make any sort of vow to God, you better come through on it. With that, take wisdom. Don't make stupid vows. But whenever you give to God or promise to give to God, you better come through on because God is a God who comes through on the things that he promises. So in the same way, be like God. We've seen things like this with some of the different feasts. For example, with the Passover, you dedicate your firstborn, even of the animals. So you redeem your firstborn son by giving an animal, like a lamb or a ram. In the same way, if you have a donkey, you can give a goat or a lamb in its place. But God says, if you don't want to redeem that donkey, then that donkey has to die because I can't have you try to cut me short. Like you're either going to give an animal in its place to redeem it, or you're going to give up the life of this animal to me. And so in the same way, we see that the people need to give good offerings. And if they offer something, they can't like exchange it for something bad. Or if they offer to give something, it's like, oh, you know what? Maybe I should make it better after all. Like, no, like give what you vow. And so we see that people's word and promise to Yahweh means a lot to Yahweh, whether it's animals or any sort of devoted thing where it could be like an inherited field. It could be a man or a beast, but whatever is devoted, it needs to be given to God. And you cannot use it once you give it to God. Then we get down to the very end of the chapter and it starts getting into tithes, something that we're more familiar with that we still practice today. And this is actually where it comes from. And it says down in verse 30, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is Yahweh's. It is holy to Yahweh. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to Yahweh. One shall not differentiate between good or bad. Neither shall he make a substitute for it. For if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And so that's it. That's the end. But again, we have this idea that whatever you dedicate to Yahweh is Yahweh's. You can't think of him like he doesn't exist. Just because he's invisible doesn't mean that he's not real. This is in the same way if you tell someone, you make an agreement and sign a contract with them, you can't back out of it. I feel like this language is so clear and repetitive for the sake of, listen, I'm God. Don't think you can back out on something you promised me. You're not just praying up into the air. It's not just going off and dissipating. I hear you. I'm with you. So come through on it. Believe him here. And then he goes into tithes, which is cool. We see that God desires people to give a tenth of their things. And if you want to redeem something that you gave him, well, you have to add more to it, what it's worth, than what you originally gave. So we see that giving a tenth is a pretty good number. And we saw actually Abraham back in chapter 14 of Genesis give a tenth of all of his spoils of war to Melchizedek. And so we see that Abraham 
tithes to this high priest who is not of the line of Aaron. Really, he tithes to Jesus before his incarnation. And we might even say that the line of Aaron through Abraham tithed to Jesus, the greater line of the greater high priest, which is really cool. If you're ever wondering, why does Abraham give a tenth? Well, we see here, that's just what God desired. That's a good number that he decided on. And so we do it. But yet, here is the end of Leviticus. And we end where Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And we just got done talking about being holy and how to be holy. And the book of Numbers will try to test that left and right. Who says what is holy or not? How can anyone be for sure? Well, Leviticus is there for that reason. And that's all I have to say on the subject. Dylan, do you have anything else? I don't think that I do other than congratulations, guys. You have made it through Leviticus just as we have made it through Leviticus. If you were wondering if you would ever make it through Leviticus in your Bible reading, now you can say that you have. I would encourage you after having listened to this podcast all the way through the book of Leviticus, go back through the book and read it yourself and see if you can pull out some more than you've ever been able to pull out in the past instead of falling asleep when you've read three verses. See if you can actually make it through a chapter or two and ask the question, what's going on? How does this relate not only to the book of Leviticus, but how does this relate to the overall narrative flow of the Torah? And then in turn, how does this relate to the narrative flow of the rest of the Bible? We're going to see that Leviticus is a very important book going forward. If not for Leviticus, we probably wouldn't be able to understand a lot of what goes on near the end of the Hebrew Bible. So we'll keep this in our back pocket, and we will be referring back to this almost as frequently probably as we refer back to Genesis in the near future. Other than that, guys, thanks for joining us on our trip through Leviticus. We're going to be jumping into numbers soon. Uh, we'll probably have a Leviticus wrap-up episode that'll kind of tie it all together and then jumping into numbers. So look forward to that. Guys, if you have enjoyed the show up until this point, please leave us a review on whatever podcast portal that you listen to us on. The more positive reviews we get, the more we have visibility to other people so that they can be blessed by the show as well. Also, guys, if you want the most real-time information, the best place to do that is either the website, www.thebibleisastory.com, or the Facebook page, Scripture Chronicles. Check us out on both of those. On the website is also access to the blog, the YouTube channel, and all of our other resources. Other than that, guys, if you would like to support us, it is completely paid for out of pocket. You can do that on the website as well. Thanks again, guys, for tuning into today's episode. And with that... Hello, Hello, adios. adios.